Not many people listened to Turn On Your Monitor, but everyone who did started a band. Jess. And this is the fourth episode of Turn On Your Monitor, where we are going to bring you a little bit of a film review for a movie that I don't think anybody saw. Do you remember when this one came out? Uh, it came out in 2013. When, in 2013, do you remember hearing about it when it came out? Oh, uh, yeah, kind of. I think because it was a flop, I heard about it. I, mostly I remember it kind of before it flopped, before it came out and everybody knew it was bad, it did get some hype, kind of. It definitely got some attention for the casting of one of the kids from Harry Potter. Oh, yeah, that is true. Um, so the movie we're talking about today is 2013's CBGB, directed by Randall Miller. And I guess this is because, I mean, you're you're definitely more of a movie person than me. I'm the target audience as far as, like, person who likes the music that this film centers around but i really do a bad job of keeping up with movies that are coming out so like when this came out i had no idea that existed i don't think i heard about it till years later yeah i think that the first time i heard about it it was like oh that movie was, was bad it has a um on rotten tomatoes right now it has a all right rotten tomatoes gives it a Seven percent on the tomato meter and a forty-two percent average audience score. Which I want to say, maybe did they just add one? Because I thought it was zero. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was too. Yeah, I thought it was zero when I checked uh, before we watched this. Right. So anyway, the the film is about CBGB, the famous music club in New York City that was home to a lot of important early stuff in the punk scene. All the big bands from there around the time, Talking Heads, Blondie, Ramones. A lot of people got their start there. A lot of people played there. So it's an iconic place. There's a lot of iconic bands. And I think that in our culture that sort of looks at everything from the past and says, what, what can we remake into a movie? I guess it makes sense. But if you had to do like an elevator pitch for this movie in like one sense, like what is the actual plot of this film? Oh, God. Uh, there isn't much of one so this is kind of hard yes this is one of those movies that when you think about it for two seconds you realize that it's actually not a good idea for a movie there's a lot of sound and a lot of visuals that are cool but when you actually get down to it i would say that this is the story of a guy who doesn't particularly care who decides to open a bar for no real reason and stuff happens i think that's kind of really the extent of the plot i would say like somebody probably pitched this as like oh cbgb closed closed in 2006 so let's do a movie about the club and like how it was founded and but yeah it's not um to walk through the plot real quick uh the film opens with hilly crystal played by alan rickman and he's in court and the judge is like you're, hey, you're divorced and you've gone bankrupt twice and uh, don't open any more bars because you're you're bad at it. And so uh, he leaves and he's like, I'm going to open another bar. <laughs> and then he does. And kind of randomly a band is like, hey, can we play here? And it ends up being television. And he's like, yeah, sure. I unfortunately watched this movie a second time. Wait, really? Yeah. And took notes. So what you what you missed is the whole framing device of this movie. I was going to talk about that later, but it's, it's... Oh, okay. okay. We can mention that in a second, but it's rough. The actual plot, television says, hey, can we play here? And he's like, sure. Then people start coming, and then a bunch more bands play there. And then at some point, Dead Boys are playing, and Hilly's like hey, I'm going to manage them and sink all my money into this, and I don't care if we make a profit because just because it's kind of hard to explain why he's doing these things because i still don't understand his motivation 
Yeah, he doesn't have any motivation, really. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get into that in a moment. But that's essentially the the plot of the film is essentially a guy who is fucked up running a bar before does it again. And he also isn't financially successful doing it, but punk is invented. That's essentially the plot of the film. So what Jess was alluding to earlier is that there is a very, very bizarre framing device used in this film. I don't know if it like I get it. I can see how this probably seemed like a good idea, but uh, the whole thing is kind of framed around the founders of punk magazine deciding to make punk magazine. And and that kind of frames the entire film. Unfortunately, it literally frames it in that it sort of looks like a comic book. I don't know how to describe that, but like everything is um, like things will happen and then they will like, be encased in the panels of a comic book with like speech bubbles and stuff overlaid. Yeah. Like um, there's a scene where, where baby Hilly is like looking at a, a cow and then like the comic book panel closes in and then there's like a speech bubble on the cow that says like moo or something. Yeah. Or when Iggy pops there, like he turns into a cartoon and then there's like a, there's like a speech bubble that says like I invented stage diving. It's not like a thing where it opens the movie and then you kind of forget about it. Like it keeps happening constantly during this film. Yeah. And it's very like, like uh, when Richard Hell says the snotty, then he gets a speech bubble and they're all like eh, punk rock. Eh. It's like basically <laughs> like basically that. Yeah. The, uh, the punk magazine framing is weird because the founders of that magazine are in there and like they talk a little bit, but they kind of don't cross paths with any of the rest of the movie. Yeah, they're kind of like a Greek chorus. Yeah, it kind of just cuts to them sometimes making commentary. It reminds me of uh, this very Canadian um, thing, and I, I should have made you watch this. We have this thing. I, I think I've made you watch them before. They're they're called like Heritage Minutes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah in yeah. Canada. Well, we have one about Marshall McLuhan where he's like, "The medium is the message," <laughs> and that's basically like. Uh, Mary Heron and like the punk magazine guys will be like walking and kind of like talking about punk. And it just reminds me of that. Like they're saying the medium is the message. Yeah, it, it definitely is like that. They're having these like revelations about punk music and it's distracting. Like it's actually distracting from the film because I'm thinking like I haven't watched like I haven't watched Scott Pilgrim in a long time, but like that's a movie based off a comic book and it doesn't do like it. It's it's not intrusively as much of a comic book as that, even though it does that a little bit. Yeah. I'm saying like, like, I mean, like there's like plenty of other movies that are based on comics that are like fine. Like, um, like American Splendor, Art School Confidential. There's a lot of movies that I like that are based off comic. Uh, Ghost World. Ghost World. Yeah. Yeah. But for some reason they decided to like, let's have annoying comic book stuff pop up like every 15 seconds in here. Have you read Please Kill Me? I have not yet. Yeah, I haven't either. I'm going too soon. It's a pretty important one. I've been yeah. I've been collecting a bunch of books about old bands. It's on the reading list. But yeah, so I'm trying to think, what do we want to talk about next? Because there's a couple of main points I want to hit. Um, I, want to, I want to talk about Hilly. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to point out was that when Hilly asks for money for the bar, it's like a dive bar he sees. And he's like, oh, I just, I want to buy this shitty bar. He asks his mom for money and... For some reason, heroin, the Vel- Velvet Underground song is playing. Yeah, and that's like really early into the movie. Like he's like, I'm gonna buy this bar. Let's talk about that a little bit later. Right now, I want to talk about Hilly as a character. Okay. So my main issue with well, I have a lot of issues with this. The main thing that confuses me about this movie is that. I don't understand what motivates Hilly at any moment because he seems to not care about anything, but then he goes through great lengths to do things, even though he doesn't care. Like he's failed running a bar twice before. And he's like, I'm going to open another bar. And it's not like, Oh, he has this dream of being a like, it's not like that's his dream to run a bar. It's just like, he just does it. He just keeps doing it for some reason. Yeah. That's kind of the the difficult thing with like making a movie like this about semi true events is that like sometimes stuff happens in real life without a reason. CBGB becoming a punk focal point was you know pretty random. I mean CBGB country bluegrass and blues. It was never the intention that this was going to be like a punk place. And so yeah, in the movie Chance Encounter, uh, these two guys and their manager are like, hey CBGB, uh, my band, I manage this band. You should let them play there. And of course it's. Um, 
television is the band and then they, they try out and play. And so then that kind of by chance sets this whole thing going, but throughout it, Hilly doesn't seem like he ever actually cares about the music. He's like, I run this bar. I don't really care about making money. I give people drinks for free. I don't care. These bands want to play there whatever. I don't care. And he just kind of keeps not caring the whole time. And then this stuff's happening. He doesn't care. He's not super into the music. He's not super into the bands. He sees that they're getting successful. And then he's like, he's like, shit, well, I want to make some money. I'm going to manage dead boys. And then he like basically sinks all his savings, all his resources and like puts everything he has into managing dead boys and like getting them to record a demo and, and go on tour and stuff. But there's no which once again is a real life thing. Uh, he did manage dead boys in real life for for a while, but you don't get the sense that like he particularly cares about the band or the music still. It's just like it's a thing that he's doing. And there was a there's a review in Vice that said that Rickman was basically the only good part of this. He didn't have much to work with, but like I did not understand his character at all in this. He was just there. Like I don't I don't say I don't want to say he's bad, but I don't I love Alan Rickman and unfortunately he's he's died. This is one of the like last films he did. But yeah, it's it's not like a great performance on his part, but I don't think he had much to work with because there isn't really much of a character there. And I don't think that can possibly be true of the real Hilly Crystal. I'm not super familiar with the man or his real life happenings. Um, I'm, I'm a lot more familiar with, with a lot of the bands and stuff. But I don't think that if you're going into this not knowing anything, I don't think that it gives you really anything about him as a person or he's like a forest the forest gump of punk yeah it basically does make him seem like that like he's just sort of like there yeah he just kind of is there and stuff happens and his daughter like drops out of school and then she's like hey let me help you run this and he's like yeah whatever i don't care and she's like you got to get your money in order we got to do this right and he's like yeah, i don't care and he just kind of like stops caring and pushes people away and then he doesn't really like there's never really like a point of redemption for him or growth. It just kind of does that for the runtime of the movie and then ends. Yeah. So like you said earlier, one of the selling points of this movie also ended up being one of the more annoying things. And that is that the soundtrack to this is packed full of pretty much every hit from around the time and, and this this sort of corner of the music world. So like you said, Hilly is like Mind you, a guy who liked folk music and played folk music and was opening a club that he thought bluegrass was going to be played in. He's like, I'm going to buy this bar. And then Velvet Underground starts playing. And then other music stingers in there. Marquee Moon starts playing. Uh, Marquee Moon starts playing. And it's at the point where he's singing, I was listening to the rain and like the ceiling starts to cave in and like all this water comes down and like they're almost electrocuted. It's very on the nose. So basically, there's there's like two reasons that music plays in this. There's a lot of footage of bands playing. And when they play, they play the songs. And they made a big deal about how this like had all the songs on there. Like when Blondie plays, they play Blondie tracks. When television plays, they play television tracks. When Iggy's up there, they play a Stooges track, so on and so forth. With one weird exception for how important Ramones were to CBGB, there is not a Ramones song in here. When they get up on stage, they play a Joey Ramone solo song, which I went looking for information on it because I thought like, oh, did they not? Were they not able to get Ramones rights? Because I mean, if the Ramones are supposed to be there playing in 75, like you're going to expect them to play like, you know, Beat on the Brat or Blitzkrieg Bop or something. But apparently Johnny's widow said, no, uh, we gave him rights to use a song. They didn't use it for some reason. So I don't know what happened there, but Ramones are in there. They don't play any Ramones songs. But the rest of them, Talking Heads, Dead Boys, they, they play the actual tracks. Right. They play the studio tracks, which is very distracting. It's very distracting because not only does it very much not sound like a rock club sounds, but it also doesn't really sound like the time period did. Because like the, the incarnation of those bands that was playing in the mid-70s was very different than what they ended up getting on record. So like... Talking Heads, when they play their first couple shows, or Blondie when they were playing their earlier shows, it doesn't sound like the studio recordings. I think that they could have... Most of those bands have live albums and live versions. I think that they could have just licensed the live versions and played them if they wanted to do that. Yeah. But I also... I was also leaning towards, I think, that doing the uh, the Buddy Holly story way of just like getting actual musicians and like 
re-recording the songs would have been fine. Yeah, I think so too. I think this is really distracting. There's a bunch of things. For example, uh, when Patti Smith sings Because the Night, there's a piano in that track, but there's no piano on stage. Right. Also a piano, but uh, when the police sing are doing Roxanne, at the beginning of that track, there's a a piano sound because uh, when they were recording it, Sting accidentally sat on a piano. So like you can hear that too. You hear this like little like piano blip at the beginning of the song when there is no piano. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that. Um, like the like when uh, when Blondie's playing, I forget um, I forget which Blondie track they're playing, but Iggy Pop gets up there and interrupts him, and he's like he's like let's play some real punk, and then they yeah. they start they start playing they start playing I want to be your dog, which first of all. Blondie in Blondie in 76 or whatever is not going to have uh, the right fuzz pedal for that song to make it sound like <laughs> that. But it goes from like slick studio disco Blondie track to really, really poorly recorded John Cale produced. I want to be your dog, which has John Cale playing piano on it, which has sleigh bells. And like the fidelity difference between them is like, it's like worlds apart. The production on that album is great, but like it's so incongruent with everything going around. Apart from like a line or two, none of the musicians are really, they don't really say much in here. They don't really have a lot of lines. They don't really do much. They're really just there to perform. Like apart from one cringy line where the Debbie Harry actor who has an extremely heavy Brooklyn she, accent. But her accent is fucking terrible. And it's, it's Malin Ackerman and she is, it is terrible. She's she's like New York has gorgeous garbage. <laughs> yeah, and her 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 like line that they put on the poster that they thought was going to be killer was like, "I wish I had invented sex," but with like a really heavy Brooklyn accent. They should have done her Harley Quinn style. She should have been like, "Mr. J, <laughs> we're just here to play some music, Mr. J." It makes me really angry because I feel like they reduced her. They reduced Debbie Harry to just like a sex symbol. Yes. Uh, like there's absolutely nothing else going on there. That makes me very upset. That happens to like pretty much every important, like they just keep bringing important people up and then not doing anything with them. Like Talking Heads, they're like auditioning. And then, you know, David Byrne's like, the name of this band is Talking Heads. And they start playing Psycho Killer. And that's literally the only time they're ever in the movie. Yeah. Like I, I would have been, I think I went into this expecting more about some of the musicians. I at least expected them to interact more. Yeah, I was expecting them to be like characters. Yeah, because they're they're interesting people, and and I don't want to say Hilary Crystal is not an interesting person, but like what they did with him was not interesting at all. It's like you have this backdrop where all this really interesting stuff is happening, and all of this great music's happening, and then like the actual plot points are like, oh, Hilly left the water running on his bathtub. Oh, does he have money to pay his rent on time? There's a very long montage of them moving pianos just to make extra money. Like There's a huge section of, like you said, a montage of them moving pianos. Spoiler alert, it uh, gets very slapstick. The piano falls down the stairs. Yeah. There's, a, there's at least like five or six scenes of him walking his dog. He walks his dog so much. And about as many scenes of the dog shitting or somebody stepping in the dog shit. Yeah, it's like a running point that the dog shits everywhere. But like the dog gets more screen time than any of the musicians. Yeah. And if you count like the dog being on stage and pooping and doing all kinds of stuff, like the dog is more of a character really than most of the people that are supposed to be featured here. Yeah. The dog is more of a character than Debbie Harry or David Byrne is. Yeah. So that's one half of the soundtrack where like every couple minutes there's a new band on stage they just keep playing. They're playing a bunch of stuff. It's it's very distracting studio tracks. I'm trying not to be too nitpicky about some of the specifics because I know that, you know, movies stretch reality a little bit. And in the in the credits, they acknowledge like, hey, I know we had Iggy Pop play in this. And also he didn't actually play here. There's a pattern of like every almost every musical number is set up as an audition. So almost at all of them, it's like, OK, we're talking heads. And then we play Psycho Killer and like. Uh, Hilly is like, oh my god, like, there's something there. <laughs> These kids have something. These kids have something magic. But also, like, his role is that, like, his character still doesn't care. Like, he doesn't care, but he's like, I think there's something magic here, but also I don't care. Yeah, yeah. 
But the other thing that makes this distracting is that even though there's a band playing like every two minutes, that's not all of the music that's playing. Because when a band isn't playing, they're also playing tracks from that era as the soundtrack. So it's just like nonstop song after song after song. So like Talking Heads are on stage. They play Psycho Killer. Then nobody's on stage and the Velvet Underground is playing as the soundtrack. And then Dead Boys are on stage playing. And then no bands on stage, but the Stooges are playing on the soundtrack. So it's just like this back and forth and back and forth. And they do this really, really, really weird editing where they're like looping instrumental parts and like cutting out lyrics and stuff so that the the lyrics aren't stepping on the dialogue. But if you're familiar with the songs, which I would assume most people who go into this probably are because the soundtrack is like, it's not deep cuts. It's very like, what is the one song people are going to know by this band? Yeah. Like television, you have Marky Moon, Velvet Underground, you have heroin, uh, the Stooges, right. I want to be your dog. Yeah. So, so it's just like, it's just like, like all of like the most obvious songs. If you're familiar with the songs on that soundtrack, they edit them in very weird ways that are distracting. So like you'll hear a song and then it'll kind of just like fade out and it's like the intro again television will be playing and then like all of a sudden everything will cut out and it's just a guitar again and you're like oh why did it loop to the beginning yeah the weirdest one though is um they play 1969 which has a very repetitive riff to it it's a very simple song but they cut the lyrics out of it which also partially i think is just because the movie at that time is in like 74 and it would be weird to have a song that's lyrics are literally 1969 but they cut iggy singing from the second verse. So they cut out the part that says this year I was 21, didn't have a lot of fun. Next year I'll be 22. So they cut all that out, but they leave in the part where he says, he says, Oh my, and a boo hoo. And so it's just the guitar is like, Oh my, and a boo hoo. And it just keeps going. And then you get, Oh my, and a boo hoo. They just left, they left, Oh my, and a boo hoo in there for some reason and cut the rest of it out, which it's a very, very weird experience if you've listened to that song a lot. And I think there might be one other one where they like chop it up, cut the lyrics out and then like loop it back on itself. And like the intro will start playing. It's very disorienting. I thought that, I mean, it just kind of sucked that like when you see, oh, Talking Eyes are playing Psycho Killer, you get maybe like three bars of the song and then it's done and we've moved on to something else. That's all you need. There's something there in that, that four seconds. <laughs> when he's doing this audition thing, the most ridiculous one is that he auditions the police who already had, like, you know, they're already successful enough that they've gone overseas and they went specifically to play CBGB. They're not auditioning at this point. And I don't understand why you would bother setting it up that way when you could just have them playing. I mean, the reason I set it up like that is because they wanted them to play and then Hilly to be like, there's something there. And it's yeah. like, it's like, oh, he's got he's the guy who can figure out what's going to. But like I looked it up and the police first played CBGB late in 78. So at that point, Roxanne is out. It's a hit. Yeah, and they're a British band. Like you don't go on an international tour Generally, you don't go overseas unless you're a fairly popular band. So like the police were not going to fly halfway around the world unless they had a hit on their hands and unless people wanted to see them. Like, yeah, there's absolutely no way that they flew halfway around the world and had to audition to play on the CBGB stage. It's absurd. You could have picked any other band and had them play and have Hilly say that. Or you could have ended the movie with like the police playing and everyone there going crazy. Yeah, both of those could have worked, but. In a movie that that very much pushes the boundaries of reality, that was a real tough one. <laughs> like, I just saw that and I was like, come on. There's almost this kind of weird thing where I feel like the movie really wanted to be about the late 60s proto-punk and about 77 punk. But was it was kind of like held back by the fact that it had to be set at a certain time. Because like the stuff from the soundtrack, Stooges, 1969, I Want to Be Your Dog. And I think they used, uh, did they use... Dirt, I think they used, they used one track from Funhouse. So that's up until 1970. The Velvet Underground tracks are until 1970. There's all these songs that are like the 60s proto-punk type stuff. And then there's a lot of songs that are from like 77, 78. But there's not really a lot of stuff like from the actual time this is happening. Like it's all like Velvet Underground or like Richard Hell, Blank Generation. Or okay. once again, like Richard Hell, most famous song, Blank Generation. Dead Boys, most famous song, Sonic Reducer. Yeah. 
so it's just like it's just like this weird mishmash where it's like jumping back and forth between like 1970 and 1977 while being set in the middle of those. And we can get back to the the Hilly Crystal audi- audition thing, I think, in a little bit, because there's I want to talk about the, the police later on that. But um, <laughs> so if you didn't know anything about this time period or the bands or anything, I have my own I have my own theory regarding the pacing of this movie. If you didn't know any better, how much time would you assume that this movie covered? I would assume maybe a year, like, right. I, there's, but it's several years. Right. So with the pacing of the movie, like nobody's hair changes. Nobody seems to acknowledge time passing like the daughter, the daughter who drops out of college and is young and should be going through some life changes and stuff like nobody acknowledges the time is passing. So it seems like the events of this movie happen within a year. I think the only thing that I remember that kind of grounds you in a time period is that there is a they cut to like the TV set in the bar where Nixon's doing his I'm not a crook speech. Okay, so for for smart people, that's true. But for people like me, it's like, okay, I know CBGB opened in 73. And television first played there in 74. Okay, checks out. Then the punk magazine guys are like, Oh, hey, that's Lou Reed. Oh, he released uh, he released an album of feedback. What the fuck? It's oh, shit. No, it's worse. He, they I wrote this down. Okay, so legs McNeil says to the other guy, isn't that the guy who made that awful feedback album? So he doesn't Ugh. even say, isn't that Lou Reed? He says, like, isn't it that guy who did the awful feedback album? Referring to metal machine music. Right. Okay. So so in my head, I hear that and I'm like, wait, what? Because I thought the movie was in 74. But if metal machine music's out, it's 75 now. Yeah. And then like, you know, then the Ramones like play and they get signed. That'd be like 75, 76. But then like Dead Boys are on stage and I'm like, oh, Dead Boys are on stage. It must be 76 because that's when they formed. Yeah. And then like at the end, like the police are there. And I'm like, I guess it must be 78. Yes. Like, it just keeps hitting you with this stuff where if you know the timeline, you're like, I I guess five years have passed. Yeah. But <laughs> but it seems like it seems like five, six months or, or a year. It But it stuff just keeps happening. And it. Apparently, it covers from 73 to 78. So I was going to ask you, because I, one of the things I wanted to bring up uh, about the Lou Reed thing was, wouldn't he know who Lou Reed was? Hilly? No, uh, Leg, Legs McNeil. I'm going to assume the people who founded Punk Magazine probably had listened to the Velvet Underground before. Right. That's what I kind of would have expected. I know they weren't. Um... But like also, even if you even if you were a person who hates Metal Machine Music, which Metal Machine Music is a great record. But like if you were a person who hates that record and you think of Lou Reed, you're not going to say like, hey, isn't it that feedback guy? You're like, oh, hey, you know, Velvet Underground Records and right. Transformer and... Like he's a big enough person that they refer to him as a rock star. He's had a nine year career at that point. Like, how can you be like, like you cannot be an early punk who's idolizing all these people and like not have a copy of white, light, white heat, you know? Yeah. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Like he, it, it's, it's not like, it's not like Lou Reed was an experimental guy who only made weird records. And it's like, Oh, there's that weird music guy. It's like, no, this, this guy was in the velvet underground, which side note, the guy that they cast as Lou Reed is possibly the worst casting I've ever seen in a it's movie. It's bad. He is played by Kyle Gallner, who mostly made his career playing troubled youths in Criminal Minds and CSI episodes and stuff like that. Actually, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he not only looks nothing like Lou Reed, he doesn't sound like Lou Reed. I've watched a decent amount of Lou Reed interview footage and stuff. He doesn't talk like Lou Reed. Like he, I think every musician is in this is really miscast. Maybe not David Byrne. Like there's just so little of him. I can't even say. The guy they got for David Byrne was solid, but he, he yeah. literally had he had one line. So uh, actually, I will also say that the kid from Harry Potter is OK, too. Who does che- he's uh, Cheetah Chrome. OK, uh, he looks like him. And I think he 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 does all right. I think that the people that got to play Dead Boys were pretty like they, they were OK. Like, I think I think Dead Boys had a bit more genuine menace than they have i don't know like all i think yeah, all of definitely. them had with again with the exception of maybe david byrne uh, all the actors have way less energy than the actual musicians do because you can totally go on youtube and like see 
videos of them playing all these people playing CBGB from the time period. Yeah, and Dead Boy sets were fucking nuts. Yeah. And like even like I again, I think my least favorite casting is the casting of Debbie Harry here and she has a lot more energy. Like De- Debbie Harry has a lot more energy performing than what Malin Ackerman does. Oh yeah, totally. They like she like is like a statue on stage like barely doing anything. Yeah, and it looks like she's wearing a wig from like Spirit Halloween. Like it's so bad. It doesn't look anything like Debbie Harry's hair from the era, and it, it's just so awful. The costuming in this was pretty bad. Everybody looks like they're wearing a Halloween costume. It very much looks like um, like a CW show with a low budget made a yes, m- yes made a period piece. Which okay, so I will say I will give the movie props. The instruments are fairly accurate to the point that I'm not bothered by them because wow a lot of um a lot of movies about music they have wildly inaccurate instruments but i will probably i chalk that up to one i think it's a lot easier now to get to either buy very cheaply or rent guitars that look like they're old because those are very popular and also because of the internet it's very easy to like like the like when talking heads are playing on stage like i i know the footage that they're duplicating and like yeah you know, it was kind of the same thing. Um, there's a there's a terrible movie, uh, Lords of Chaos, I believe it's called, based off of the Lords of Chaos book that follows mayhem around. And like, there's a scene at the beginning of that movie where Euronymous is playing guitar in his basement, and he's playing a Les Paul with stickers on it, and he's got two pedals on the ground. He's got the HM2 and the SD1. And I know in my head, I know exactly the photo that's based off of because there's like one photo of Euronymous playing with two pedals visible on the ground, and that's what everyone, how everyone knows what played um and so like i I know that the photo that's based off of which uh spoiler alert there's actually a couple photos from the gig that mayhem played where they had the uh the dead pig's head and dead cut himself up there's a (laughs) there's a couple photos taken with a flash from the side of the stage where you can see euronymous playing and he also has the hm2 and the sd1 on the ground as well there actually is a second i can't remember it's one or two from that angle but there's a there's an additional photo of of euronymous but like talking heads that scene I know exactly the photo that's based off of. So I will give CBGB credit that somebody studied the photos, made sure the equipment was fairly accurate. For the most part, they they got the stuff decently right. And the, the wardrobing, like I can tell what they based it off of, but they did a really bad job of making it look real. They just made it look very cheap. Everything. Yeah, everything just kind of looks like a costume. Leads me to another sort of question here. The framing device of like punk magazine unnecessary to the film what totally unnecessary to the film but also weird because like some of these bands aren't really punk yeah like i i don't know but i don't i don't consider the police punk which is not you know it's, i'm not dumping on the police at all in saying that but like i i will i'll shit on the police i don't i don't, <laughs> I don't like the police regatta de blanc is mostly okay i don't really like most of their other stuff they kind of suck that's my that's my take yeah they're my they're my least favorite they're, yeah, they're my least favorite of the bands that are featured in this. I think I actually do like all of the bands that are featured in here besides yeah. the boys. I think that that kind of comes around to like part of the reason that this is a difficult movie to make is that the narrative of the movie wants you to think or it wants you to accept that here was this place that started when people needed a place to play and it attracted all these people and punk was born in CBGB, except the movie itself keeps wanting to go back to the sixties. It keeps wanting to play the stooges. It keeps wanting to play the velvet underground. CBGB started in 73 velvet underground was done by 73. The stooges did not play CBGB. Like, like the stuff that set the foundations for punk, all the garage rock from the sixties that had already happened. So not only did all this stuff happen before CBGB, but like, the 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 movie starts with and i'm sure i'm sure just because it's an iconic thing and because it's because it's rock and roll but like the movie starts with the intro to MC5's kick out the jams from their live album kick out the jams motherfucker <laughs> but like that was recorded in detroit by a detroit band before cbgb existed that right. was i think that album was from 69 and then like the stooges were also from detroit so Stuff that was happening to set up punk was happening in Detroit and a ton of shit was happening in Britain. 
there's all this shit that was going on. Like it wasn't just that there was this one place where punk was born. There were actually a lot of places where, where stuff was happening. Right. There wasn't even just one place in New York. Right. Because like also some important bands, uh, and I will give credit to, I've been listening to a lot of no dogs in space episodes recently and picking up some, some factoids and stuff, but the cramps had an audition at CBGB and apparently they, that was still when they were like very, very new and didn't really know what they were doing. They changed their strings right beforehand so that when they played, when you change your guitar strings, you have to stretch them out and play them a little bit or they don't hold tune. So uh, they changed their strings before they went on and like were horribly out of tune and it was a disaster. And then I guess Hilly was like, yeah, you're never allowed to play here again. So they, they were never oh, allowed shit. to. So he was like, there's not something there. Yeah, he was like, there's not something there. Um, <laughs> but also uh, Suicide played there and Suicide loved being confrontational and weird and everyone fucking hated Suicide. And he was like, you're not allowed to play here either. So yeah. both of those bands went to Max's Kansas City, which was the weirder, the weirder one because it was kind of, you know, that's where like, Warhol's whole crew and the Velvet Underground played like like Max's was like another punk hub of New York City. So if you were in New York City and you wanted to hear the Cramps play or you wanted to hear Suicide, you would go to Max's. You wouldn't go to CBGB. So like that was a whole additional thing happening. And if we're talking about like where the Velvet Underground played, the Velvet Underground played at Max's. New York Dolls played at like Max's. Yeah, like, a lot of shit happened at the film that I'm going to pitch is that you should let us make Max's Kansas City the film. Yes, I would love that. I would love a suicide movie. Shit, a suicide a suicide biopic would be great. I kind of feel like, I don't know, maybe this kind of movie doesn't work and it is better to just do a biopic. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that like by the time you get any kind of character development in this film, it's around dead boys and the plot kind of hinges around them. So my thought was just like, shouldn't the film just be mostly about them? But then like you miss yeah. out on... That would have been a much more interesting. You miss out on Ramones and Talking Heads and all this stuff, right? But, but it it would have been a more interesting film. But I guess it's hard to sell a Dead Boys film to anyone. Yeah, I mean, Dead Boys are in it because Hilly had an actual role, like he managed them and stuff. In terms of mainstream audiences, they're by far like the smallest band of the big ones featured there. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming that's why it wasn't because <laughs> I'm assuming it's hard to make a Dead Boys movie like, oh, you know, the band that did Sonic Reducer and then the studio executive <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I think it, it really is just a weird framing for a movie like they they wanted to shoehorn all the music in, but it doesn't really lead to like a satisfying film. Yeah. And like there's a plot arc with his daughter, but... And none of it there. works like she shows up out of nowhere and is just like i'm dropping out of school dad you can't make me go to back to school i don't care about you or anything yeah and then the rest of the movie is just her arguing with him about accounting this movie has far more accounting talk than any movie about punk music should ever have yeah i think it's you know last night i watched um school of rock and I've just been thinking like it is a much better movie about the spirit of punk rock than this was. <laughs> yeah, it, it actually is. Despite featuring all this music, this doesn't like capture like any of the actual anything that actually seems important. Yeah. Should we talk about how his partner played by Donald Logue? has sometimes a British accent and sometimes not. That's a character choice. Uh, and he he wears a hard hat for, for most of it, and there's no explanation for that. Uh, supposedly, it said on the final credits, I guess it was a... I, I, I mean, I guess it's based off a real guy who I guess wore a hard hat. I don't... Like, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not I'm not familiar with all the, the people that were involved in the, like, accounting and stuff of CBGB. I wouldn't say that uh, Alan Rickman's accent is great either his american accent no to me it sounds like it sounds like alan rickman phoning in a performance yeah it really does yeah it, that's yeah like he slept through this like every scene with him is basically like i'm alan rickman and i'm running cbgb <laughs> he's running it like professor snape that reference that i totally understand <laughs> Yeah, that's just kind of the vibe I get. Like he says things in an Alan Rickman-y like way. Oh shit. Also, one thing that bothers me, I know that the real guy's name is Hilly Crystal. Yeah. And I I know that. And I know every time he says it that that's what it is. But every time he says it, it sounds like he says, My name's Billy Crystal. <laughs> My brain kept processing it as him telling people to call him Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal. 
<laughs> like, oh, yeah, you remember when Billy Crystal opened CBGB? He's, yeah, he's just like, I'm Billy Crystal. I'm Billy Crystal. There's something there to this band, Talking Heads. Oh, this, this band, uh, I think there's something there. I have nothing to base this off of because I don't care about this music at all. Because when, when I go back to the farm, I pick up an acoustic guitar and I sing something song about birds or something. <laughs> Which apparently there's like a real track on the soundtrack that's like, I guess like the real Hilly Crystal playing a folk song or something. Oh, okay. I guess. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not familiar with, with Hilly's oeuvre. I read a couple. So I read a couple of reviews of this from the time and they were all basically like, this movie's bad. Or like I said, the one the one Vice review was like, this movie's bad, but Alan Rickman's great in it, which also no. And then I, I went looking to see why there wasn't actually a Ramon song on there. And uh, I read a statement from Johnny Ramon's widow, who first of all said that they did give them permission to use a Ramon song. So I don't know why it wasn't in there. My guess, maybe do you, like, do you think it would have been more expensive to get a Ramon song than the other ones in there? Like, is it more I, expensive? No, I can't imagine like, that. But it can't, it can't be more expensive to get like Beat on the Brat than like Psycho Killer, right? Yeah, no way. I um, mean, but, I mean, there's a the Ramones have a song for the movie Pet Cemetery. <laughs> like, I just don't think that's a great fucking song. Too. It's a great song. Like, there's some bangers in I the late Ramon, in the late Ramones yeah. catalog. The first time, okay, so the first time I ever actually heard that song, I was skipping through radio stations. And um, there were a couple college stations back in Georgia, one for Georgia State, one for Georgia Tech that I would get. And I flipped past and like I was like trying to find stations because I didn't know what any of the stations were. And I was like trying to find one. And I stopped on like one and it was just playing. It was just playing Pet Cemetery, And I'd never heard that song before. Um, I'd only ever heard earlier. Most of it. I was like, oh, shit, this is cool. So, yeah, Pet Cemetery by the Ramones. Good song. But yeah, so there's a weird conspicuous absence of a real Ramon song because like they do the thing where like Johnny storms off stage and they fight. And then there's like a there's kind of like a goofy bit where they're telling Hilly all their song names. They're like, uh, I don't want to walk around with you and listen stuff off. And then Hilly's like, is there anything you do want to do? And then uh, Joey says, uh, we're working on one called I want to sniff some glue. And that's like the big joke from the trailer. I think that's probably the best scene in the entire movie. Yeah. But like then they Ramones get on stage. They do the thing where like Johnny storms off, which he was wont to do. Like they would fight on stage and stuff. But like they don't play a Ramones song. Like you don't get a Ramones song in here. You mm-hmm. get a you get a Joey song, which is very toned down from Ramones proper. Yeah. It's weird. And then also in uh, in her statement. <laughs> so <laughs> the history of the Ramones is like Johnny constantly rained on the parade because he was like a lifelong Republican and he had a stick up his ass about a lot of stuff. So like when the when the Ramones would write a song that was anti Reagan, he'd get mad at them, and that's who Johnny was in the Ramones. But yeah, so he passed away, and his widow was talking. And one of the things she took issue with, she's like, the casting they got a Puerto Rican guy to play Johnny. He was he was Irish and white. I'm like, this. this. Do you think that uh, she revoked permission to use Ramones <laughs> songs because he was Puerto Rican? No, she. I mean, she did. She did say like, I don't know okay. why they didn't use it. We said you could use it, but right. then she's she's like she's like my Johnny was Irish and they got a Puerto Rican guy and like of all the things to notice in this movie, the fact that the guy playing Johnny Ramon was Puerto Rican did not cross my mind at all. Yeah. Um. But it was like I was like this is a maybe don't maybe don't do this rant. I know you're I know you're mourning your the loss of your Republican husband, but like maybe tone it down. So I don't know why there wasn't a Ramon song in this. My gut says if they had a real Ramon song, it would have been like it had it would have it would have been Blitzkrieg Bob. It it had to have been. Yeah, it had to be. Yeah, that's the way that the soundtrack to this movie works is that it would absolutely be Blitzkrieg Bob. But it wasn't. They didn't they didn't have a Ramon song. There was not a Ramon song. There were three Velvet Underground songs for some reason. But yeah, <laughs> not a Ramon song for, for the band that never played there. Another thing that becomes really conspicuous when you have those songs on the soundtrack playing as background music is that you realize, whereas a film theme you can play multiple times and it's not weird. Like it is kind of weird when you're like, oh, they're playing, uh, they're playing that song for the third time now. I remember when they played this the other time. What was the Velvet Underground song they played? They played a bunch of times. The only one that I remember is Heroin because it was so out of place. That one was very out of place. I wasn't expecting that to be the setup of how the soundtrack worked. And that kind of took me off guard because that was the first one. 
oh, I can't stand it. They play I can't stand oh, it. Oh like, yeah. They play that like three times, I think. Maybe maybe two, at least two, but I think three times. And it has the lyrics and everything, and it just like plays during when stuff is happening for some reason. Everything in this movie happens like that. Like everything just happens for some reason. Iggy pops in there and just hanging out. He just hangs out. Um, and sometimes, like like we said, he jumps on stage during Blondie. So like, let's do some real punk rock. Now I want to be a dog. Yeah. Also, the manager for television offers to suck his dick. And he's like, maybe just lick my stomach. Everybody wants to suck my dick. Everybody wants to suck my dick. Uh, just lick my stomach. And then the dude's like, all right. And then they're like, he has like a spring in his step as they're going to like the CBGB <laughs> basement. <laughs> He's just like an like an old head just hanging around CBGB all the time. Well, like, I just feel like they felt like they had to add him for some reason. Like they were just like, oh, we need to have him in there just because he's iconic. Yeah, they had to have Iggy and they had to have Lou Reed in there because they're like, these guys are like the forefathers, even though they didn't play at CBGB. And yeah. like there, there's a thing at the end where they're like, yeah, we know we know Iggy Pop didn't play at CBGB, but that's artistic license. So suck my dick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, speaking of, do you want to talk about the the end credit, uh, where are they now montage? Yes. This is the best thing about this movie. There is a kind of like, where where are they now uh, thing at the end of the movie. And the movie just ends. I can't even remember how it ends. It just stops at some point. And they're like, oh, this person is doing this. And it says, the Ramones played 74 gigs at CBGB in 1974. The band became so iconic that their music can now be heard in commercials and their CDs can be purchased at Starbucks. In case you were wondering what happened to the Ramones. I don't know what I was expecting, but I, that one kind of took me off guard. Also, CDs is spelled CD apostrophe S. <laughs> Hell yeah. I feel like by the time the credits were rolling, like my mind was kind of just like broken. Yeah, I just I remember being like, wait, the movie is over. Well, yeah, because I think the last scene isn't the last scene. The police. Yeah, it is. I think Yeah, they play Roxanne. He's like, oh, there's something there. And then it's just there's like cu- cuts, it cuts to black. And it's like, that's it. I mean, because I guess there was a resolution where like Hilly was like, I haven't paid my rent and I don't have any money. And then they're like, his daughter hands him a big stack of money. and She's like, here's some money. He's like, where'd this come from? And they're like, it's money, I guess. They don't really... Do they explain where the money comes from? I spaced out on that. Uh, I think it's just better accounting. (laughs) I don't know. There's this whole thing where like he doesn't... He takes money and just puts it in his freezer because he doesn't trust banks. But then when he does put it in the bank, then he goes to the bank and he's like, how much money do I have in my account? And He has $300. The lady's like, oh, you have $300. He's like, I'd like to take it all out for dead boys. (laughs) uh, You say he has a line where he sees like a thing about like save for your dreams. He's like, why would you save for your dreams when you could spend money on those dreams? He said, why why, why would you save for your dreams when you can live your dreams? And living his dream is giving his piano mover truck to dead boys to tour, which they crash. They crash immediately because they're all high and drinking. And then spend all his money to, is he going to record the, he's going to get him to record a demo was the thing and yeah. send, him on, send him on tour. Yeah. So that's what living his dream is, is sending them out on the road. Well, and then the, uh, the singer is almost killed. Yeah. In yeah, the fight, yeah. And then um, he has to spend all of his money to like pay for his hospital bills. It's living the American dream. Yeah, not much has, has changed. So we went into this expecting this to be a bad movie. Like I knew it was going to be bad, but I wanted to see it because I don't know. I mean, it, it covers probably of, of all the musical time periods, one of the ones I'm most interested in. So I was like, it, I probably should just watch this movie to see what it's like. And I don't know what I was expecting. I was expecting it to not be good, but it was not good in ways I was I was totally unprepared. I was not prepared for the comic book thing at all. Yeah, me yeah, me too. And I don't know what I was expecting the plot to be, but I wasn't expecting it to not have a plot. I wasn't expecting it to be so focused on the minutia of running a bar. Yeah. Like so much of it is just money troubles. It's mostly a plot about that, about not having money for beer or you know, uh Hilly's letting too many people in for free it's kind of like if you take the first season of it's always sunny in philadelphia and you have like television playing behind them but also (laughs) 
make it not funny. Yeah. (laughs) That's kind of what this movie is. Because, yeah, there's so much shit that's just like, yeah, I I guess you would need to care about the price you're buying beer for if you were running a bar. Oh, God. There's a whole. Oh, God. There's a whole fight about toilet paper. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where the daughter is like, where are you buying it? She has a terrible New York accent. And she's like, where are you buying your toilet paper? Mr. J, where are you buying your toilet paper? <laughs> and he's like, I buy it at the bodega because we're in New York City. We're, we're in New York City. I buy it at the bodega. Mr. J, <laughs> you, you got to buy it wholesale. Yeah. Just talking about buying toilet paper wholesale. I do feel like I came out of it knowing more about how you run a bar and i know less about punk music than when i went in it does feel like it kind of drains your brain of of anything useful so you get bikers to hang around your bar you let them drink for free you're losing money because nobody's paying so you kick the bikers out and then when your landlord comes around to hassle you for money because even though you have the money you just haven't been paying for some reason then the bikers show up because they're actually your true friends. They are, yeah. To kick the landlord out. So if there's a lesson, it's that you should befriend bikers, probably. Yeah, yeah. And in, and then, like, you know, I don't know, fucking later you're playing a concert at Altamont and you're like, hey, <laughs> I need some sick bikers to run security here. I mean, it always goes well, right? Mm-hmm. Always trust bikers. If you were in charge of this movie, what would you have done differently? Everything. How would you have done a CBGB movie? Either I would have tried to make the character of Hilly more interesting or I would have just made him kind of a minor character and maybe did it more like about the bands. I don't know. I've kind of thought about this a little bit and I don't actually know, knowing what I know about CBGB and the scene, I don't actually know because I can think of like maybe doing more of a New York punk movie, but then once again... Do you get Max's involved and it's not a CBGB movie? Yeah. It's one of those ideas you pitch and it sounds cool. Oh, CBGB. Punk's happening. A lot of cool bands. A lot of exciting shit's happening. People are fighting. I mean, CBGB eventually closed down because of uh, financial issues and unpaid rent and stuff. So yeah, <laughs> fi- financial financial issues and, and struggling with that kind of stuff. Like, there's a lot of stuff that sounds interesting, but to like, actually put it into a film, it kind of doesn't work. Yeah. But there is a movie that I think is very similar to this, but good. And that's 24-Hour Party People, which is a movie about Tony Wilson, the guy who ran Factory Records. Yeah. And he's played by Steve Coogan. It's funny. Like, he, you know, I don't know how closely it, like, it hues to Tony Wilson, but I think it's a more entertaining movie. And it is very similar. Like there are bands in it, obviously, like you see Joy Division. And I think all of that works a lot better. All right. What I'm pitching is the film takes place in one day. We have the bar. And it's one of those movies where people talk about shit. You have some people. The climax of the movie is you have one of the concerts there taking place at the end. And I don't know who you want to have on the bill. Pick like three of the people like you have the Ramones and you have somebody else. and You have somebody else and you have some like parts from that. But like the climax of the film is like this thing happening. But it's kind of a movie that's also just about it's one of those movies where people in a, are in a bar talking. That's my CBGB movie. Yeah. I don't know what they'd be talking about, but, you know, you know, those movies like my dinner with Andre. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically the punk my dinner with Andre. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really know what else you I don't know what else you do with this, really, unless you want to follow like specific bands. Like if you want to make a I'm trying to think of who has the most interesting story of these people making a Talking Heads movie would kind of be weird because. Yeah. Talking Heads movie could be cool, though, maybe. But also that wouldn't be Talking Heads at CBGB is like such a very, very small part of the band in general, though. Mm-hmm. The thing is, like, for a lot of these bands, like, the Ramones played CBGB, like, very early at the beginning, and it's, like, a very small part. So even if you're doing, like, a band story, it kind of only takes you so far. Yeah, so uh, would you recommend this? anybody watch this movie? Only if you want to have a bad time. I was thinking maybe it was going to be one of those, like, so bad it's funny movies, maybe, because mm-hmm. the Mayhem movie was bad, but I think it was like bad in a way that it, it was kind of funny to me that it was bad because it basically felt like they were trying to make black metal Scott Pilgrim. Like it was kind of like narrated yeah. like that. And it was it was very much like sick. Now we just needed a drummer. 
this is Hellhammer. It felt like if Scott Pilgrim was burning down churches, that's sort of <laughs> what it was like. I mean, that sounds good to me. It's it's not a good movie, but I would I would rewatch it before this one, I think, probably because this one is just kind of like it's a lot of stuff. Like, I like all these bands. I like all the music they play and like a lot of stuff that I like is happening, but like not in an interesting way or in a way that's like I, I will say I haven't been too crazy about his his latest stuff, but I'm a pretty big Wes Anderson stan. And mm-hmm. like something that I like about Wes Anderson soundtracks is that they'll very often be like a lot of bands you like, but then they'll be like kind of sometimes a bigger song, sometimes a deeper cut. Like, oh, it's, you know, like, oh, he's got like a Rolling Stone song on every on every uh, soundtrack. But like maybe it's a deep cut from 66 that you don't typically listen to or like, right. hey, I never listened to, you know, like this particular like 60s pop group, but this song's pretty cool. And like he does this like real deep dive and pulls out some interesting stuff. I think all the soundtracks are great and there's some interesting stuff. Even even bands that I like, it's like, oh, that's kind of an unexpected choice for them. But like the soundtrack for this, if you're even a little bit interested in this music, like you already listen, you, you know, you've, you've heard I Want to Be Your Dog and you've heard Blank Generation. You've heard you've heard Sonic Reducer. Like you've heard all these songs like these are like the biggest songs by the bands that are picked. Like you've, you've heard heroin. You've heard, you know, yeah. you've, heard, you've heard Roxanne. Like these are these are not the deep cuts. These are not interesting choices. Not that that's bad, because like I said, Heroin's one of my favorite songs. Blank Generation's a great song. I want to be your dog. Like I, it's one of the best songs ever written. But like you encounter those enough times anyway that it's not like it's not like a treat to hear it pop up in here because you're like, oh, I I was listening to the Stooges the other day. I heard that song already. Like I, it's not surprising to me that it's popping up here. Yeah, there are no surprises. Apparently the um, apparently the the person who plays Iggy Pop in here is a Foo Fighters member. Yes, uh, yeah, uh, Taylor Hawkins. Yeah, the the drummer. Yeah. So that's cool for all the the Foo heads out there. I think he's the only like musician involved in. Which was a weird choice because they yeah. don't really do much. You could have got real musicians. I mean, Cheetah Chrome has a cameo too, but. Yeah. yeah, I think that. OK, so so in Scott Pilgrim, the, the actors that they cast weren't really musicians, except for uh, Michael Sarah already played bass, but yeah. they had band practice so that when they were playing on screen, they were playing the real song. Right, um, right. Like the uh, the Sex Bob Bomb stuff. Beck wrote those songs for, for the, the fake band. I know that everybody hates Scott Pilgrim now, but great comic. The the movie's great. The, the soundtrack for it's great. Those songs are those songs are pretty killer, and they they fucking rehearse those things so that when they're on camera, they're playing. Allison Pill, she learned to play drums enough, and the the dude playing uh, the singer, like they all learned how to play enough that like they could play the songs. And when you have a bunch of people who are just actors but not really acting you could have just like there are so many musicians who could have like there, there are musicians who play those songs all the time you can just like get them in the movie for a day they can play those songs like i, yeah. I don't i don't i don't understand really the casting i don't really understand the, the casting choices and stuff there's just so many they don't really look good and they don't they're not convincing as people actually playing music yeah, and they have no like. It's not like a situation where oh, they have a bunch of lines, so you need like a, a a good actor. Like they don't. Yeah. Like apart from Debbie Harry, none of the members of Blondie speak. Like, right. I guess apart from I want to say Tom Verlaine has like maybe like three lines. I think yeah. Richard Hell has like maybe one or two, and then the the other two members don't speak. Besides, the name of this band is Talking Heads. None of the members of Talking Heads speak. The members of police don't speak. Do they really? Do the police really not even say anything? The guy who plays Sting looks like he's fourteen. Oh yeah, he looks like <laughs> he looks so fucking young. But yeah, and then I don't know. Maybe they don't say anything. I don't think they say anything. I think they just play Roxanne. They're not even like, oi, oi, we're the police in it. <laughs> oi, we're the constable, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't think they say anything. I think they just play Roxanne, and then Hilly's like. I think there's something there. <laughs> and then the movie ends. And then the movie ends. And it's like, reader, there was something there. Because that band went on to be the police. I was sitting there in anticipation, like, what happened to this band? Did they become anybody? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, you know what? Okay, the movie would have redeemed itself if 
the closing credits with all the like where are they nows if literally the only one was about sting and tantric sex and then it was just over <laughs> i would have probably been on board they should have had they should have had sting in the movie dune wearing his little diaper thing i'm gonna make a movie called 72 hour party people and it's about sting and tantric <laughs> sex it's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna be a, a single tantric session for sting <laughs> yeah is there anything else we want to talk about this movie uh, I want to talk about how the director oh, got shit, somebody yeah. killed on the set of another movie. Go off, Queen, because this was a thing that okay. we finished the movie and then went to Wikipedia. I was like, who the hell made this movie? And then you found something uh, pretty interesting. So I, I will let you. But I, yeah, that. I remembered the incident because I remember when it, I remember when it happened. People talking about it, but um, apparently he, so he, he was directing a biopic, I think, about Greg Ullman called Midnight Rider, and they were filming on a train trestle that was an active train trestle, and a train came through and it hit a camera assistant named Sarah Jones, and she died. And he was charged, the director was charged with a negligent homicide or something like that, and he was on probation. I don't know if he, he went to jail for a while, and I don't know if he's still on probation, but he he's not supposed to be directing movies. He's not allowed to direct movies. Yeah, he's he's still on probation. He, he got, technically broke his probation at some point trying to film a movie. He spent a year in prison and he's supposed to be on uh, probation until like 2025 or something. But he yeah. he went to like, didn't he go somewhere in Europe? Yeah, he went overseas and directed something. Yeah, so then he um he got in trouble for for that. But yeah, he was the first director who went to prison over getting Yeah, because a, John Landis didn't go to prison for killing people. Randall Miller's the first uh first director to go to prison for recklessly getting members of the production killed. But yeah, I, I did remember this. It was a big story at the time and there was kind of a lot of talk about how dangerous um, and how little oversight there is over film sets and how bad safety is. And I don't feel confident that anything changed. Probably not. And I don't feel confident that he won't be allowed to direct movies again. Randall Miller will kill again. Probably. Like, he shouldn't make movies again just based on how bad this movie is. I would have sent him to prison for CBGB. Yeah, me too. Like I was reading about I recently watched Repo Man again and was thinking about Alex Cox and um, how after making the movie Walker, he basically was never allowed to film another movie in Hollywood. And I just I can't believe that this guy made this terrible movie and then was allowed to make a movie about Greg Ullman. But he's not allowed to make movies anymore. Yeah. He's been married to his wife uh, since March of 99, and they have two children, so that's cool. He directed the pilot episode of Salute Your Shorts back in 91. That's great. Has he made anything good? I don't think so. I'm getting mad. I mean, I don't know what most of the stuff is. He directed like some like episodes of TV shows I've never seen, and then he... I think the only thing of his I've seen is CBGB. And if if that's what I'm basing my opinion of his work on, I can't say that I'm a fan. I just I'm thinking about people uh, like Penelope Spiris, the director of Wayne's World, who also kind of had her career tank. Yeah, I don't think she's worked since 2012. But like she's so so deserving of more chances to direct. And this guy has had so many fucking chances. And he's probably going to get chances again, even though he got somebody killed. I'm looking at his acting credits. Apparently, he's had a couple of roles and some stuff. He played Bucky in Throw Mama from the Train in 87. So successful career as an actor as well. Uh, Real triple threat. Director, actor, murderer. (laughs) Oh, shit. It wasn't just Sarah Jones who was killed. It said... uh, Seven other crew members were also hurt one seriously. So he got a shit ton of people hurt. That's fucked yeah. up. Yeah. Like he did like he like he did the actual trolley problem on people. <laughs> yes, he did. He should have got more than a year in prison. That's pretty fucked up. It's very fucked up. It's very it's very John Landis. Yeah. Like 10 years of probation, one year in prison is like nothing for like it's nothing. Yeah. He got he got like a he got a apparently a shit ton of people hit by a train by trespassing yeah. illegally to film a fucking all movie yeah they didn't have the right permits it was like an active train track like imagine doing that I and mean, when you think about how long it takes to set up 
shots and stuff like that, you, you're thinking, of course, a train is going to come through. As someone who has lived by train tracks multiple times, yeah. they come through all the fucking time. Yeah. Oh, fuck. This is grisly. They were attempting to remove camera equipment and the metal bed from the trestle. They failed to remove it when the train rolled through. And so it shattered the metal bed, sending shrapnel towards crew members. Oh, my God. Uh, fragments struck camera assistant Sarah Jones and propelled her forward, t- propelled her towards the still moving train. So it like was shooting like metal shrapnel everywhere. And it like threw her into the way of the train. That's really grisly. Damn, this dude got off fucking easy. Yeah, this is almost as bad as as the Vic Morrow stuff. Yeah, this is fucked up. I'm sorry. Did anyone need a Greg Allman movie to begin with? Who is watching that movie? We were all begging for that one. Closing thoughts. Just that I, I hope this guy gets hit by a train. Yeah. <laughs> Karmic debts need to be paid. Randall Miller should get hit by a train. Let's see. How do we want to end this? Is there a memorable line? Uh, No. i can't even can't even spoof it yeah um oh shit on on the uh, on the poster uh hilly has a speech bubble that says there's something there is that serious like yeah wait let me oh god iggy pop is saying lick my stomach okay debbie harry's saying i wish i had invented sex hilly's saying country bluegrass and blues question mark and then the dog is saying something I love dogs, but this dog had no charisma. The dog did not need to be in there at all. Like, I mean, I guess that there, were, I, it seems like there was a real dog who shit places. Yeah. But for some reason, that became like the focal point of the movie that the dog shits a lot. Yeah, the whole movie. Oh, I can't believe I forgot this, but yeah, the dog has fleas. So the sound engineer keeps getting bitten by fleas, and Hilly's partner with the ambiguous. British accent tells him, why don't you go get yourself a pair of boots to cover your ankles from flea bites? And he goes and he buys a pair of combat boots. And that is supposedly the origin of punks wearing boots. It seems pretty unbelievable, but George, George Lucas, it's like poetry. Everything rhymes. It's the hero's journey. <laughs> he goes through the hero's journey in this. <laughs> Doing a podcast where we track the, uh, the films of fuck. I already forgot that guy's name. Randall Miller. Randall, uh, Randall Miller, yeah. Through the work of Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell. Shit, I was trying to find the poster. Now I'm just finding cool shit. Like, I found like an old CBGB's poster from, I guess it must have been 75 when the Heartbreakers were playing there. Yeah. So that's cool. There were so many bands that I would have liked to see that were not in this there's a heartbreakers track on the soundtrack i want to say but i would have liked uh would have liked some johnny thunder in the in the film yeah yeah i failed to figure out what the dog is saying in that poster he's he might be saying like woof or something or might be saying something about his ass probably anyway no memorable quotes nothing to take away there's something there Ah!